definition, a composer of songs. Today we're talking to songwriter Clark Datchler from the band Johnny Hits Jazz. Clark's songwriting first came to prominence in 1987 when his band Johnny Hates Jazz released the single Shattered Dreams, which became a top 10 hit all over the world, including a number one on the US adult contemporary charts and has had millions of radio plays since. They went on to make music videos for MTV with David Fincher and Clark also wrote the follow-up singles and worldwide hits I Don't Want to Be a Hero, Turn Back the Clock and Heart of Gold. Just as the band had found international success, Clark found himself dissatisfied with the direction the band was being taken in and decided to leave the band to pursue a solo career. Clark moved to America in 2000 and became environmentally active, winning awards such as the prestigious Green Tech Award. In 2009, Clark reunited with original Johnny Hates Jazz band member Mike Nikito, and in 2013, they released the album Magnetized, reviving the old sound with a modern flavour. The promotion for this album was sadly cut short due to Clark suffering a cancer diagnosis to which he made a full recovery. The band took some time out and released a new single titled Spirit of Love in May 2020 and a follow-up album called Wide Awake. The album featured inspiration and influences on Mike and Clark as they grew up in the 70s and Clark's newly found appreciation of the world after his health scare. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Clark Datcher. Clark Dachler, welcome to Songsmith. And thank you very much. Thank you for being our guest on the show. Normally, I start off these interviews by asking people what was their first instrument that they were introduced to music by. But I think in your case, you wrote a song about it called My Old Piano. Yeah, uh, actually, that's an interesting one because um, My Old Piano was a co-write with uh, Phil Thornalley, um, who... Uh, was the guy who took over from me in Johnny Hayes Jazz when I left in 88. And Phil's had a very successful career since then um, and before. Uh, so we, so he's kind of, you know, his experience is similar to mine. And um, the, 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 the thing about the piano is that um, I was introduced to that instrument by my dad, who thought that it would be a great instrument to learn um uh, in a uh, in a more formal sense, so that's how I would learn to read music, and and I was absolutely rubbish. I was useless, and I could tell that the piano teacher was really struggling with their patience um, when I was in the room. And eventually, he turned around and opened up a flute in front of me, and he said, "Clark, have you ever thought about learning another instrument?" <laughs> And I looked at the flute and thought, why on earth would I want to learn that? And but ironically, his reasoning was was that it it was only one line of music, so it would allow me to learn the theory of music in a. It's ne- nothing's ever straightforward when you're learning the theory of music, but but in a more straightforward way than on piano. So that actually became the first instrument that I got any good at, and then 
I returned to teaching myself piano when I wanted to write songs essentially. Mm. And, um, and and got on much better. It became my main instrument when I could just teach myself and not deal with the theory side of it. I was interested in um, the bazooki. 20 years ago, you're writing about sustainable, green, free energy. And now it's all anyone can talk about. It's like at the, the top of the agenda for every government out there. You write social action songs and you wrap them up in a lovely melody and you make them so digestible for people so that they're singing along and maybe they don't understand what they're singing along to and then they went oh um yeah the bazooki is you know obviously originally a greek or potentially yeah. turkish instrument but 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 then irish and i yes. play the irish version and um you know i i got into that in, in an interesting way it completely connects with what you said so that's why i loved the question in the 90s uh, after I'd left Johnny Hates Jazz and I was getting into what we, we call environmentalism, uh, it's hard environmentalism as a term because it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit political. Uh, it's very necessary. I mean, I know we need to use that, but I, I always refer to environmental, environmentalism as really care for the earth. Yes. So mm. uh, my care for the earth started to deepen and what interested me was which instruments somehow spoke of the land from which they came from. And I started to record with those instruments at the same time as I moved to the city of Bath and based myself at Peter Gabriel's Real World Studios. And uh, Peter, of course, was one of the great progenitors of spreading world music around the, uh, around the world, quite literally. So his studios were full of of world musicians playing world instruments and although i actually didn't interact with them a lot i did some but it was more it was more nice and inspiring being in an environment where it was accepted as normal to do that whereas in yeah. pop music it really wasn't still mm -hmm. isn't so um one of the forms of music i really got into in in my quest to relate to the land on a deeper level of course was irish music I, I actually felt that listening to, you know, oh, cool. your journey song. I absolutely felt it was kind of connected to nature. That was just me and maybe people, you know, but I really did feel that when I was listening to the songs. Where will we run as the oceans rise? Because the world's heating up and there's a hole in the sky. One thing about Johnny Hits Jazz is it was a pop machine, basically, in terms of you were, you know, you're making videos, you're on top of the pops and you, you were you, you went through the pop mill there behind the pop songs. There was some really deep songwriting under the hood that was going in under the guise of pop songs, but were really deep, meaningful songs. So was going through the pop machine, uh, was that kind of a reaction to go away from that, to go back to nature and do the opposite of commerciality? I think uh, it's a very astute question, Ken, and I think it, uh, I think that was actually a reaction to it because um, all my young life I wanted to be a successful musician. I'd wanted to be a pop star, and it sounds really, really shallow these days because we're inundated with 
people on TV from all walks of life who want exactly that. But I was um, coming from a different era. By saying that, I meant I wanted to have influence as a musician because I really did feel that I could use music to put forward a positive perspective on life and experience. And although I was young, you know, and I still had a lot to learn in terms of how to articulate myself with writing, I think that when when it actually happened for us in Johnny Hates Jazz, and we were we were successful all over the world, practically simultaneously, you know, every, so many countries. And at first it was, you know, I thought I took it in my stride, but after a while, I started to realize that we were being pigeonholed, especially in Britain in a way that I was very uncomfortable with. And it was the prime reason for me leaving. Um, And, uh, and it's true that I wanted to go deeper lyrically. My, my first solo single after leaving Johnny hates jazz was called crown of thorns. And it was really a critique of organized religion. And, Mm. and I, and it's amazing that Virgin chose that mm. out of all the songs I gave them as the single. I mean, kudos to them. But on the other hand, it was a bit of a kamikaze mission because that's not really, you know, everyday fair for, a, you know, a, a new solo artist yeah. to establish his career. But it's a world obsessed with religion. And now you wear the face of a god. That's kind of been the, the, the trajectory of my life since Johnny Hates Jazz, because I'm, as you were saying, uh, Eva, I, um, you know, when I wrote Power and I did the album that that's from, which is called Tomorrow, you know, that was a, that was a whole environmental, spiritual environmental yeah. statement, which shouldn't have been ahead of its time. Because, you know, at the same time, Al Gore's film and In- Inconvenient Truth had been out. You know, there was it was there was heightened environmental awareness, yeah. but but there was great resistance in that era and still to this day yeah. about it being articulated in the medium of music because music's become just another form of entertainment, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Yeah. And and I came from an era when it wasn't. You know, 60s, 70s, 80s yeah. were full of artists who had major success with writing songs that had something to say about our society, about our relationship with the planet, with each other, Mm. whatever it is, as well as writing songs about love and, you know, all the kind of standard fare. And so for me, it was, that's just what you did. If you're going to be in music, why would you do it for any other reason? Lights go out. But tomorrow struggle to be heard. And I'm I'm and I do think that was one of the prime reasons that you know yeah. you play that to a you play that to BBC radio and they will immediately say, Oh, we can't play that. Yeah. Yeah. Well actually yeah, on that's... tomorrow you have Phil uh, Phil Gould played drums on that, did he? 
Yeah, Phil Gould, who was one of the founder members of Level 42. Yes, Phil Gould and his brother Boone Gould pretty much left Level 42 for the same reasons you left Johnny Hits Jazz. They started off as being serious musicians. They were writing these uh, jazz kind of funk songs and then the commerciality creeped into it. They became huge, but they pretty much bowed out of Level 42 just after running in the family when they're at their peak, you know, when... But most people would be thinking, your career has just started. Phil and Boone decided, no, we want it out. So I said it was a kinmanship there. Did you discuss that or did I ever... Discussed it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Discussed it a lot. Terrence Trent Darby as well, pretty much the same thing, you know. He he changed his name. There seems to be a thing at the time that a lot of artists, it was maybe too much, you know, for for people. I I think it was also beyond that. It was an interesting thing about that time of the 80s into the 90s because um there were other artists tears for fears were a good example you know who were writing about substantial subjects and we've got to remember that all of us are growing up at that time yes you know we're growing up as we're writing this stuff so you then get into the 90s and of course you've you've matured that much more and you start to question what the purpose of your life is i don't think it's necessarily just a question of we found success too difficult to manage because let's face it, we were very fortunate to be in that position. But I think it was also that it was a coming of age for a group of people. Maybe they started to have kids. They started to think of life differently. And it was also what was happening in the nineties, which was a very, very strange time to me because on one hand, there was a kind of a deepening sense of spirituality and music when you had people like Deep Forest mm. doing what they were doing and um, an enigma. And and then at the same time, you had a kind of a, you had the emergence of uh, reality TV and music fueled by that. I mean, take that emerged from, you know, a TV show, the Esther mm. Ranson TV show of a band being put together. And, yeah. and that kind of set the tone for what came after, which for me was a a, uh, a a disengagement with how musicians usually uh, work to become successful, which was a, a very hard road, but a necessary road. And then suddenly you go through the TV route and it's uh, it really is all about stardom. It's easy to get lost in the kind of the influencer era and the reality TV era, but among it all, there is genuine nuggets of gold out there in terms of like young people coming up and actually using their voice for 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 good and using their talents, like being a musician, being um, songwriters for good as well. It's a it's a really good point, Eva, and you would know that very well as a teacher. Probably know that better than me. And and I think the all of these things are double edged swords. I mean, this yeah. has always been the case. For example, the music industry, which we all tend to refer to as if it's this kind of monstrous. <laughs> you know, a uh, AI thing that is trying to, you know, dominate our lives and 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 how we think in terms of how we listen to music. Um, the the music industry traditionally has played a very important part in in bringing people to the fore who wouldn't have had a chance otherwise. And yeah. I'm not saying it's the same as it used to be. It's not. But yeah. and I do think there's a lot to be said for being able to reach your audience now without needing a label. And I'm one of those people that's yeah. able to do it. So I. I really appreciate that. At the same time, um, 
it's a bit of a free for all. I mean, yeah. the one thing about sixties, seventies, eighties, I go back to that that yeah. the, that thirty year period, is that the bar was set pretty high, yes. and it was set high by the labels. Well, I, I also wanted to ask, I suppose, as I'm listening more to your kind of catalogue and one of the things that really kind of jumped out at me is how fantastic you are at writing a bridge and getting the importance of a bridge, whether it's Shattered Dreams or Magnetized. I just thought the bridge seems to be a very, very important part of your songwriting and you set your song up very well to add so much to the song. Are you always looking for the bridge or? Uh, OK, what we need to do is clarify uh, terminology here because yeah. I've run into this a lot. Oh, really? By bridge, by bridge, which section of the song are you referring to? A classic one would be um, in Heart of Gold. Yeah. When you get to the bit, uh, there's something about the way. Okay. So uh, the reason I ask is that when I grew up, the bridge was actually the part that came before the chorus, what we now call the pre-chorus. Pre-chorus. Oh, okay. So that was the bridge. And then the bridge that you're referring to was the middle section. Middle eight, if it was eight bars, middle but eight, you yeah. know, middle section, yeah. And I and I have to just clarify this because that's mm -hmm. actually the 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 pre-chorus and the bridge being as they are now is American terminology and, and something I had to reacquaint myself mm. with. Um, some years later, when I when I had lived in the US and then returned to the UK, and everyone was using, you know, that terminology. So I know exactly what you mean. Um, the the thing about writing songs is that how best to put this structure is incredibly important, and that's the beauty of growing up, as I was fortunate enough to do, to listen to some of the greatest writers who were creating the song structure before my eyes. So that would be, whether it was the, the great writers of the 40s, an example, Rogers and Hammerstein, Sammy Khan, these people, um, and then Burt Bacharach, of course, Hal David lyrics. And then, you know, it goes without saying, of course, Lennon and McCartney and, uh, and, and others on from there, you know, uh, Justin Hayward in the Moody Blues, you know, you go on Darrell Hall and John Oates. I mean, there's so, it, the list is, the list is endless and they they taught me how to write i just listened mm. and loved and studied mm. and was inspired by and so the shift that happens to what you've just described eva in terms of the fact that things have become quite monotonous now is the advent of a computer-based recording. And mm. believe me, I've got my computer-based system behind me, so it's not a judgment. But this is the fact of what happened. Computer-based recording and, at the same time, it's all kind of was a perfect storm, the advent of DJs making their own records. Yeah. Mm. Now, why is that important? DJs are generally not musicians. I've I've worked with a few of them, and essentially – they're very good at doing what they do, but when it actually comes to what we would term as songwriting, you know, they're literally, they've got three fingers, at, uh, if if this is how they do it anymore, where they're literally moving them up and down the keyboard in the same pattern. Mm. So there's no real sense of, you know, what what they create the, 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 
the excitement through the production, Mm. not through the song. And the build-up of it, yeah. Yeah, and so the the um when i was younger and i'm still like this to today i like to finish a song before i try and record it and in the recording process it might teach you that something doesn't work and you need to rewrite it but essentially i sit at a piano or with my bazooki or with my guitar i just got and i and i get the song pretty much completely together now the way songs are written really since the 1990s and not everyone i don't mean to put everyone in you know under the same umbrella there but generally is that they write as they're recording yeah in other words they'll sit down and i've been with some of these people believe me uh, i won't name names but i've been with some of these people where they'll start a session by saying basically what shall we try and sound like today hmm. they'll go on to spotify pick out someone say i heard this record the other day it sounds great maybe we could do that that happens in that song but obviously not copy it but just let me so there's a kind of a a groove there they want to start with and Mm. and that's okay to a point but essentially what you're doing is you layer sounds on great sounds that you can now create in computers with software you're tricked into thinking it's it's great it's exciting it's inspiring you're caught up in the whole uh the whole energy of creation and no one's there to say but what's the song like mm. you know if you took all of that away and just played it on a guitar what's it like yeah. and i think that's what's happened is that structure has gone out of the window because sorry that was a long-winded way of saying no, it's it, great it's great the, the, the beginning of the dj emergence has led to a way of creating music which is not song based mm-hmm. it's not they may say that i co-wrote the song with 10 other people which is generally the case these days yeah. but that doesn't mean that they are writing a song they're more assembling a song yes. yeah i've i've seen these um i've seen these packs for sale where you can literally download chords and people yeah. just drop them yeah. like lego in, in <laughs> it's play. amazing <laughs> It's and, a, it's a, it's know. so funny the whole AI debate. Mm. I, I was mm. thinking this the other day as there was you know new fears you know Elon Musk saying you know we're all going to be dominated by robots in the future which might happen I don't know but um, it was more I wanted to say it, we don't need AI because humans are doing a good enough job at creating their own version of artificial intelligence in terms of what they choose to create mm. and what and, and the actions that they take in the world let alone music. Mm. So I think we should be concerned about what we've created in our own minds, not what we're creating artificially. What do you say about about that, though, is, I mean, I've seen a video on TikTok where a guy creates a book using AI, you know, Uh, and this is related to music as well, because they'll probably try this as well. But he created the story using AI and then he created the images using AI. Yeah. And then you put the book together and and you can do a self-publishing thing, the credit book. But the book looked creepy at the end of the day. <laughs> it looked it looked horrendous. It, it 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 it's it was there's something about AI generated images that are creepy. That they, they kind of lack soul oh. or something. There's <laughs> something about them. Yeah. But this book was a children's book and it, it was just there was something off about it. It was just weird. Yeah. Uh, it's I... very odd. One thing I'd say, Clark, though, is I literally went to a point where I was listening to no new music for years. I mean, the 90s was 
a write-off and the 2000s in general for me I, I literally stopped listening to to new new music you know but then some new bands kind of came along like the feeling is a great band and i started listening to uh some acts there recently there's a girl called lizzie mcalpine who writes some fantastic songs and they're acoustic based songs and they've all the tricks of of a brill building songwriter and she's young she's only in her uh, 20s and you know, she's an accomplished songwriter at a very young age and there's a lot of people like her i um and i just want to very quickly pick up ken i, I will just add to what you said about good young artists because i don't want to make it sound like i'm i'm negative about everyone and everything that's happening now i'm critical of what's yes. happened mm. but um there's i mean i'm actually working uh, on the development of a tv series with a production company in the states which focuses on on unsigned artists who have created a career for themselves without the need of of interacting with the traditional music industry so i am looking at younger artists who and sometimes they're older artists as well this is new who have managed to do this yeah yeah um so uh so i just wanted to make that point there are some yeah. good people but they're always happening you see I, if i may just backtrack a minute the 90s had some good artists in it that it did it's just that they got swamped by everything else that was happening yeah mm. i mean i think i have to say i think noel gallagher yeah, as a solo artist, is I'm much preferring than I do when he was in Oasis, and it makes me think oh, he's a very talented guy. Yeah, um, in the in the two thousands, maybe this was the nineties actually. Coldplay, of course, emerged. Keen emerged. I always Keen. loved Keen. Love Keen. Yeah, and and um, you were touching on the feeling. Who I agree, excellent. Travis came out of that time. Uh, I really liked Empire of the Sun, the 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 first album. I still like Empire of the Sun. So there's all kinds of things, and that's quite a while ago. Empire of the Sun, who of course is still going, yes, because there's just so much of it. It's really hard. It's um, like being on Netflix and you spend twenty minutes just searching, and then you're like, oh, I have to go to bed now. Yeah. <laughs> and you watch nothing. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not alone. In that. Oh no, that's, that's a regular occurrence. You know, it's, it's the so overwhelm funny. of everything coming at you. Just in terms of writing yourself, Clark, but you can kind of write about anything as far as I'm concerned. Do you ever get writer's blocks? Like, are there songs that were like really challenging to write? I uh, I think writer's block is actually, to me, it's just part of the process of writing. Yeah. I don't I don't reach a point where I go, oh, my goodness, I've got writer's block. I, I, I'm panic and I don't know what to do. My way of dealing with moments when I... I'm not able to make a breakthrough with a song or start a song is that I give it time. I just, I, I mm. think that's something that in our world we give ourselves less and less of. Yeah. Um, especially in a time of where we're, we're looking for more, I mean, all of us are, you know, in terms of the internet, looking for more instant gratification. And I, I, um, I've always taken time over songwriting. And so, you know, Shattered Dreams took me ages. Did it? Yeah, and but it's not that I was thinking, oh, this is taking me a bit long. You know, there must be something mm -hmm. wrong with it. It was just that that's how I interpreted the songwriting process to be. Especially when you, I listened to interviews or read interviews by the artists that I loved from my youth, and that's you know, although although the media kind of loves the stories of someone saying, you know, I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I suddenly wrote this song and it was, you know, <laughs> yeah. magic. And th th those things happen, of course, occasionally, but generally it, it just takes a lot of time. Just like with, 
a painting or a sculpture, you know, you kind of, you do a bit of work on it and then you have to stand back and give it a bit of space and listen again and think, no, nah, it wasn't quite as good as I thought it was. Yeah. And, and would you and start with a, with a title, Clark, or would you, do you try and a, a melody or music first or, or, or do they both come together? It, they both come together, yes. And titles are really important to me. I think that um, it's almost like, the, you know, think about the title of a book. Yeah. Um, sometimes there are just, you know, excuse me for sounding slightly shallow when I say this, but there are just hit titles out there. Yeah. I mean, I was just looking at Eddie Izzard, who's, you know, about to bring his one-man performance of Great Expectations to London. And Great Expectations as a title, you know, Dickens is – it's just a great title. It is. And, and yeah. so you kind of, they're very important. The titles are inspiring in and of themselves. They're just, like, um, you know, no, it is, bro. It is great title. Well, it's in, it's, it's, it's in its own world, but I don't um, mean to put Shadow Dreams. Brave New World, for example, is a, is a great title for a book. It's fantastic. I totally agree. I mean, it's actually I mean, 1984 and yeah. Animal Farm, what an amazing title when you understand the concept. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're right, Ken, you know, with Brave New World, it's become part of our everyday speak now when we want to describe something yeah. that actually the book does kind of allude to. So um, anyway, in terms of songwriting, usually it's a melody and a lyric coming at the same time mm. because one really can't work without the other. They've both got to be right, uh, in in my humble opinion. And And if they're not, there's always something kind of missing about it. You know that great story about mccartney and the original lyric to yesterday being scrambled, scrambled eggs, eggs. Yeah. yeah and it's funny and you kind of chuckle about it but yeah. you know what he was going through is that you know i can't this is not the right lyric for this melody which is potentially very mm. powerful so yeah that's kind of part of the process yeah it all comes in one great big jumble i have to ask you this because you just mentioned the beatles there but uh, apparently, your father sang uh, backing vocals on "I Am the Walrus." Is that? Yeah, right? he did. Yeah, <laughs> he he did, and um, he also worked with a very young Jimmy Page when Jimmy Page was just oh. a, a session guitarist. Was that true? His so, association with Dick James in the Stargazers because Dick James was the publisher for the Beatles for Northern Songs for a long time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He he did know Dick James well, and. Um, and yeah, my dad was, you know, from the, the pre-Beatles jazz world and, and was very successful. So he recorded with Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald wow. and Joe Stafford and and um some some great people. And uh and his opinion of the Beatles <clears throat> was was really interesting because typically, as you can hear a little bit of me espouse today, there's a bit of a dissatisfaction with the direction that <laughs> popular music has taken and my dad absolutely felt that and and didn't feel even though he'd worked with the beatles and he could respect that they had some ability he thought the direction that he they'd taken music was was a a travesty it was yeah. the wrong direction and that really that was not just a um a generational thing can I ask yeah. you, actually, um, at the time, say, you had yourself, uh, your father was, was uh, a, a well-known musician, and uh, Calvin Hayes, his father was a known musician, and Kim Wilde was on the scene as well, and her father was a, a well-known musician. So was was there kind of a, a musical brat pack happening at the time? <laughs> yeah, mafia. Where, was there a community there? Uh, no, I think, I think 
there may have been a few others, but me and, and Calvin and Kim were all on the same label. Oh, and okay. that was the label that was owned by Calvin's father, Mickey Most, the producer. So, yeah. you know, Mickey, uh, you know, Calvin, that was his dad, and he, he worked for his dad as well on the label and was signed to a band on his dad's label. And that was a band that I joined, a band called Hot Club. And yeah. um, and then Mickey signed me as a solo artist, and he had already signed Kim and had success with Kim. Yep. with kids in america so there was that was a great example actually of someone who was in the music industry but was very much into in his own slightly abrupt way i have to say with mickey um if he if he took a shine to you and he felt you really had something he would he would literally nurture your abilities yeah, yeah. and and um mickey did that with me and obviously Calvin and, and Kim without a doubt. And uh and those people were the people I was referencing, you know, um earlier, that they were integral to how the artists that we we now think of as, you know, as just part and parcel of our lives had a chance. It was through those people within the industry. And Mickey was one of them. But there wasn't really a brat pack to speak of beyond no. that, no. Can I ask you, um I'd like to talk more more in depth about the the music uh, while we have time, and say, um, if we say if we go through uh, to turn back the clock album, obviously we we discussed Shadow Dreams, um, uh, so I don't want to be a hero is 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 one of your greatest songs really, uh, which is about the Falklands War I believe. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean I wrote. Hero in '86, so it was four years after the Falklands War. But it yeah. was more that during that conflict, you know, there was very serious talk about conscription, and yeah. um, I think that I, you know, it was a, it was a, it was something that we were as younger people wrestling with, you know, if it was going to happen. And it was one more example of questioning why conflicts happen at all. Yeah, and 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 I I find it very important in later years, and I do this when we when we perform live, me and Mike and Johnny H. Jazz perform live. I always say that that I have great respect for our service people, yeah. Oh, yeah, the absolutely. women and men who who work in our armed forces. Absolutely incredible respect. And the song is not about them. It's not an anti. It's a support of them. Actually, in other words, if there's going to be a conflict, you make sure you put our brave women and men into harm's way for the right reasons, mm. not the wrong reasons. Ironically, the Falklands was um that it was unarguable really because it was started by another country yeah um and i say that with a degree of um, a degree of knowledge and balance because i'm married to an argentinian oh. so i've i i've got to hear the other side of the story as well you see what um, yeah. yeah so um but heroes a song that again when i wrote it i I was always, you know, you have to 
every album you have to write an anti-war song it's it's it was i didn't even think that way it was just that's what, it was just a natural thing to want to do because yeah. it's something that's plagued humanity for you know for it's probably one of the one of the last great war songs to be honest because people aren't really Thanks, people aren't right no, songs and when you i was only saying to eva last night is uh, i mean since ukraine has happened there hasn't been a slew of artists writing Ukraine songs. It's just not happening. Whereas if mm. if this was in the eighties, there would a lot of the big bands would have touched on the subject somehow. You know, like the U yep. twos or the Simple Minds. It's just not happening. People are just separating politics and saying no, we're not going there. You know, for whatever reason. And well, uh, this is this is the thing about this is this. It's a really good point, Ken, and, I, and I'm I'm quite shocked by that. But I think it's also. That there is a, I'm sure. Look, there are probably artists who who are writing songs about it, and we just yeah. haven't found them, and they're struggling to be heard. And I respect that. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's also the fact that we're dealing with a generation who have grown up to see music as uh, an instantly accessible form of entertainment to rival gaming, computer mm. gaming. Yeah. My daughter's in the computer game industry, so I, I you know, it's something that I've been exposed to quite a bit and um and i really think in other words what that says is that it's a pastime it's a it's a release and and all of those are fine you know that's music's always been partly that but it's kind of it's in the process of the 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 uh, uh the impetus to entertain um i think that uh, something has been lost and that is mm. the sense of responsibility mm-hmm. that a lot of artists maybe not all artists but certainly a significant number should have we're going to be heard potentially all over the world and in these days we don't know how because of the accessibility of music now so so i i would say to young artists remember that you know you don't you won't be listened to for very long that's just the nature of life so make sure you are clear about what you want to add into that pool of what I think of as the collective consciousness. Yeah, mm. absolutely. You know, it's a it's a potentially really valuable, and artists can do an awful lot of good if they turn their hand to it. Especially on mass, as you as you rightly pointed out, in the eighties would have happened. Um, so hopefully that can turn around. I'm not quite sure how yet, but 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 I think as as you're referencing, Eva, you know, with a few bright young artists emerging, maybe they'll be the ones who will tip the scales. We'll see. I think so. I, I hope so. I think that also kind of Ken's question kind of leads into how you actually reimagined Shattered Dreams, you know, as a tool to show your support to um, people in Ukraine um, dealing with the, you know, um, the war there and um such a beautiful reimagining of the song You know, I'd heard you on another podcast talking about how it happened and it, it, 
it was so lovely. And I and the fact that that song wasn't like a political song really in any way, shape or form. But now like the title, as we talked about how important titles are, Shatter Dreams mm. just perfectly encapsulates what's after happening to the Ukrainian people having to just get up one day and just leave everything behind and move somewhere else. And it's just, you know, it's just so deeply sad, you know. And so I just think fair play for actually doing what you did with Shatter Dreams. I think it's fantastic. Thank you, Eva. Yeah, it's actually, uh, it, it is a, an interesting one because like you said, I, I didn't write it as a <clears throat> anti-war song for that reason at all. And to have it applied in that way was very moving for me. I mean, I had the piece of music, so it was, it kind of connected very easily, but it also, it says a lot about the power of um, music being visualized, you know, through video, of course. So that's another great way to make uh, a point. And, yeah. you know, that's a, videos are, let's face it, videos are complicated to make because very often they're expensive. They just mm. are. And yeah. I was very fortunate when, we filmed the video for Shatter Dreams of Ukraine, which was done in this room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was turned into a studio by uh, a, a wonderful um, couple of filmmakers who did it for nothing. Well, wow. Everyone worked on it for nothing um, because they were passionate about the, the cause as well. And, um, and it, it, it completely seats the song in a, with a, a a different fresh perspective so yeah videos are really important still i'm, I'm i've never been negative about videos i think they yeah. could be used to a, a great advantage well you had some great moves as well back in the 80s i was watching all your videos they were quite actually i was saying this again i was like they, they had a very american feel you know turn back the clock the videos from that mm. They're um, fantastically like, well made stream and you know but they they're just they're really cool you was that yeah, they were sh- they, they were, they, of course, back then, you know, the big thing, and this goes back to the Beatles, you know, the big thing was to break America. America. That's what, that was the phrase, yeah. break America. Yeah. And, um, and we did. And so we shot some of our videos there. Actually, we shot them there before we'd done, we'd done well, but Virgin America, who was our label, thought that we were going to do well there anyway. So, yeah. and, and two of those videos, the black and white shattered dreams yeah. and heart of gold were, directed by a very young david fincher yes mm. we were talking about this the other night and yeah we're kind of going through i was like that's that's so cool isn't it to and have- it has the it quality cool. has yeah. the quality to them yeah. it's they're just amazing look even you know you you would think that over time things would you know you look back and you think oh things weren't as good back then but if somebody made a video like that today it would exactly. it would win awards and moving on to when you reunited uh with with mike and you created the first album, Magnetized. Can you can we talk a, a bit about Magnetized and and your coming back to John Hitt's jazz after being a solo artist? There was a um, a kind of a reappraisal of the eighties in the early two thousands, and the the kind of retrospective festival was born, yeah. and. Um, Mike and Calvin, Calvin was still in Johnny Hates Jazz back then. Well, there wasn't really a Johnny Hates Jazz, actually. They'd just been asked to do it, and they asked if I would do it, and I said no. It wasn't. Mm. And I'd said that kindly. I was not, you know, it was, although we'd had a bit of a falling out when I left, it wasn't, you know, that was many years ago. So it wasn't, just really wasn't where I was at. I was recording that album tomorrow 
in my own solar powered studio in Arizona in the high mountain desert. And I get a call mm. about doing a tour as part of Johnny Ace Jazz. And it was like, it's just so far away from where my yeah. head was at. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then some years later, I, I, there's a song on tomorrow and tomorrow I should say very quickly. And this is, this is quite important. Um, it's part of a coming album, a triple album called Journey Songs 2. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Journey Songs 2 has a, a remixed, remastered version of that album on it, plus another two CDs of other material I recorded at Real World. Um, all very much with that kind of spiritual environmental environmental focus uh, about it. But the reason I mentioned that was that there was a song I did on Tomorrow, the last song I did for that album, which is called Nothing Left to Lose. Now, if anyone's familiar with the Journey Songs live stream, the song that you hear right at the beginning is Nothing Left to Lose. And when I wrote that song, I thought, you know what? I've distanced myself from Johnny Hayes Jazz for so many years and didn't want to be associated with it that why don't I just try and dip into that part of me that wrote those songs? Yeah. And I did, and I wrote Nothing Left to Lose. It's a, and I really like that song an awful lot. And after that, I came up with an idea for a song called Magnetized, which lyrically was about the, you know, the possibility that we live many lives and that perhaps we meet each other again and again in these different existences mm. for mm-hmm. for various reasons, to finish off unfinished business, who knows? Yeah. Um, so that was the idea that we're magnetized together somehow spiritually. Drawn to each other. And yeah, drawn to each other for reasons that perhaps we don't realize at the time. Or, as I mentioned in the song, could it be we were we're we're enemies in one life, you know? And mm. it, you know, that's just part of how we learn and grow. So, and then I, at the same time, that idea actually, I should say, as a, an idea for a song, had been around for a while in my mind, and um, and then I came up with the the chorus to magnetize with the title. Mm-hmm. Um, do we only live to die or is it that our hearts are magnetized? And um, and I really thought, you know what, this is, I really should talk to the guys about whether we should give this a go and do it. And and so I um, I met up with Mike first in Cambridge where he lives uh, and we met up for a bowl of pasta and, uh, and it was very natural. It was so natural seeing each other again after 22 years it had been. Wow. And, um, and it wasn't, I, I, I just decided to leave it at that. And then me and Calvin talked and then eventually I decided to, um, play the man besides just say, look, what do you think of this? And they really liked it. And, and shortly after that, Calvin left the band for his own reasons. And so it was down to me and Mike to, Mm. to record it. And, that gave rise to the whole album magnetized, which was really kind of a, you know, it was, it was like a Clark Datchler solo album meets a Johnny hates jazz album. It's got its own thing about it. And I still really like it as an album. It's a great album. It feels like you started where you stopped in terms of has the same feel. Your voice is the same. The songwriting is the same. 
And the opening riff for Magnetized, which I believe you came later in the writing process, is it was it was kind of saying John hits jazz's back with that sound. There's some great songs. I mean, The Road Not Taken is a fantastic song. And I think in general, if you look at the titles and if you look at the songs, there seem to be a lot of looking back and kind of closing things off and closure and uh, kind of saying goodbyes and things like that. So it's almost like saying that was the past. Uh, it was almost like a goodbye album where when you get on to, to, to your, your follow-up album, um, it's it's completely different. It's almost like um, one's like night and the other's like day. Um, the mm. follow up album was was very very positive. We, we might come to that in a minute. But was magnetized? Did you see that? Uh, was that just coincidence, or did you see that as a kind of a goodbye to you know closing a closure album? Um, I didn't actually. I, I, the reason I say that, I mean, the road not taken, which is one of for me the best songs I've written if I'm allowed to say that without sounding presumptuous, Um, I actually is on the album tomorrow. So that's going to be on journey songs too, in, in its original recorded form. So that song had been, I re-recorded with Mike for, for magnetize. So that had pre-existed and, and it was really that I think I'm very inspired by poets, the poets of the, you know, the 17, 1800s, maybe early 1900s. And, and I think that the, a lot of poets and writers tend to consider the nature of life and the fleetingness of it. Mm -hmm. And so there's almost a sense of sorrow that you find in some of the great poets because they know we're not going to be here forever. Mm -hmm. And they contemplate that it's not something in the distant future. And and so I think that's just something that's a natural part of me. I tend to, I guess it's a, you know, is it a, it's, I write it in, in a sense with a sense of wonderment, mm-hmm. at what, you know, life's purpose really is and where we go after, after here, if at all. And, uh, but also perhaps as a slight coping mechanism, yeah. Yeah. as a way to, to deal with my own sense of sorrow that I can't be here forever. We always talk about this, about whether songwriters write from their own personal experience or draw on their own personal experience. You know, can you put yourself in other people's shoes and write from another person's perspective? 
Yeah, I I can. I I could do both, and I think it's whatever the melody kind of calls for, or the 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 idea that immediately comes together. A good example. I'm going back a ways now. Is Heart of Gold. Mm. You know, which was really, you know, I said at the time was written about prostitution and in a in a sad way. You know, it was yeah. it was I, I was I was trying to evoke a sense of empathy there with yeah. people who go through that experience. And and I'm not sure I did it very well because I was very young, but um but so yes, there there I think that's a necess- that's a necessity to put yourselves in other people's shoes, even though the song may not be written from that perspective. Yeah. You know, it's look. It's the it's imagination. I magi. I the magician. You know, yeah. it's it mm. it's a it's a power that creatives have to empathise. You did this in in release you. From what I see, it's written from the point of a ghost looking at someone saying, "I'm letting you go" or "or let me go," and it's almost like um, what was that movie with Patrick Swayze? It uh, is called Ghost. Oh, Ghost! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is Ghost. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it has that kind of feel of uh, that ghost, you know, where I could almost picture the video of of a kind of spectral figure looking at someone and giving them the the power to to let them go and release them. I like people can empathize, but not everyone can write, it, articulate it, and write it down. So yeah, that's brilliant. And that and that time. subject is common to us all, potentially. Yeah. You know that that no matter what happens to us post life, we would want the people that we leave behind to be happy and fulfilled, mm-hmm. and 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 make the most of the rest of the time they have on, yeah. on Earth. So, so yeah, that that was the purpose behind release you, and I I was thinking more and more about. Um, I've written songs before, and one in particular, which will probably be on Journey Songs Three, if there is ever a Journey Songs Three. But yes, uh, the, the subject of of mortality, I think, is a, is especially poignant. Uh, with Release You, it was a very hard song to, and it still is sometimes a hard song to sing because I connect with my potential eventuality when I sing that song that I will be the one who is about to go, or as you said, Ken, in the song, I've actually gone already. I've passed already and wants to say to the people who are holding on to my memory to say, don't hold on too tight. Yeah. That you can invite other beautiful things into your, into your lives. It's time for me to, to move on. And um, I remember when I did that on journey songs, I and I talked about it. I got really emotional, uh, and I, I, I think actually a lot of people did, just because not because it's me, but because it's a subject that we all rarely kind of talk about. Yeah, mm. understandably, you know, it's not it's not an easy subject to talk about. But um, it's a necessary su- subject though to talk about. I think you know it really is, and and, yeah. and a powerful one because it then it makes you look at the time that we do have and yeah, what absolutely. are we going to do with our time. Yeah. So there's another song on Magnetize actually called Goodbye Sweet Yesterday. Oh yeah. 
which is um, on a societal level about how, you know, civilizations rise and fall. Mm-hmm. And e- indeed, planets come and go, you know, in the grand scheme of things, everything is finite. So it's, it, it plays a lot on my mind. It's still part of how I, I wonder about the nature of existence. had a health scare if you don't mind me mentioning you you've spoken about this before but was was release you written before that before yeah which yeah. is quite prescient really isn't it i mean magnetize had come out as a single yeah was doing really well radio 2 bbc radio 2 at the time were still you know playing artists from the 80s they don't do that less now but they were then and they really went for it ken bruce in particular and uh, it was it was flying high, and then I I was going for a walk on Hampstead Heath in London with my kids, and I collapsed, mm. and it turned out I had massive internal bleeding, and I and and a malignant tumor was discovered in my in my stomach, a very unusual form of cancer, and and basically when the doctor told me that he he said, and he was very good the way he did this, he said, look. A lot of people get very worried when they hear the term cancer. And my face just went completely pale. But not all cancers are equal. Yeah. And we think we've got a good chance of getting you through this. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it wouldn't respond to chemotherapy. It's, you can't do anything like that. We have to operate. And we're either going to get it or we're not. Yeah. And I remember at the time... A great sense of wonderment came over me. It wasn't fear. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, I'm I'm done for. It was like, wow, I've just been told that th- that my time may be up. Mm. How incredible! I never thought I would feel like this, but it was wonderment. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was shock, and then came a sense of trust. Yeah, that actually I was going to get through this, and I did. I was very fortunate. They they operated, and I recovered very quickly. But release you, it was something that I pondered when I was going through that. The the fact that you know release you was written before it. You're a spiritual person. Something in our psyche is kind of talking to us. And yeah. that song was there for you afterwards. That you were in tune with yourself. It, it's just a an amazing story really and it's such a beautiful song and you know it's powerful what you just said Eva really mm-hmm. powerful I I when I lived in the states for 10 years and I I was very close to some Native American people and the and the the eldest amongst them who's still a dear friend of mine very old man now said to me on the phone a short while ago he said who's your best friend and I said uh well I don't really know I mean you know I've got my my wife, I've got my kids, I've got yeah. him, you know. He said, no, your best friend's your body mm. because you wouldn't be able to experience anything in the physical realm without your body. Yeah. 
he said you can be as spiritual as you like but you ain't going to get there without your body and it really woke me up and reminded me of what you said Eva just that, that there's no doubt that when you have those close calls I think what it gives you is measure what is important mm-hmm. and what is not important. And I am, I've always been quite a laid back person, but I'm, okay. I, I'm, and I get stressed still. I guess we all do yes. when, you know, yeah. our workload is too great or whatever it is, or emotional okay. stress. But, but essentially, I kind of, I'm, a, I, I'm very happy. I just am happy to be here. What we just spoke about there in terms of, going through an experience, a, a medical uh, experience. And I, I was saying that the 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 last album was quite an introspective looking back album. It was, it was quite, it was a lot of sadness. Would you say there's a lot of sadness in Magnetized? In Magnetized. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very much and so. When you look at Wide Awake, it's even the title, Wide Awake. It's like someone jumping out of bed in the morning and it's opening the blinds. It's just a whole new attitude it's and the songs don't stop the music you know a wide awake no mistakes all the songs free i mean all the song titles are just positive 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 um i mean you what you went through in your medical issues that must have fed into your songwriting and instead of looking back let's look forward and and just embrace and and be happy to be here yeah, I think actually, the, weirdly, the, the the way that came about was I'd written a song, or rather, sorry, I'd written a chorus of a song called Spirit of Love, and I couldn't finish it. I don't know why. I was, here we go, <laughs> it's a writer's block. I just, for some reason, it, I didn't really find a way of finishing it that I felt happy with, so it just kind of lingered. And then me and Mike were talking about eventually doing another album and we had put us so much work into magnetized that we felt actually quite exhausted by the idea of going back into the studio so um at the same time interestingly phil thorn alley who as i said um uh we we had an association with already and in fact mike and phil were childhood best friends Mm. um Phil, who had become very successful as a songwriter in his own right, um, he uh, he sent me and Mike a an instrumental, no, no melody, just a backing track, sorry, I should say, a backing track of a track that he had worked on for himself, but he just never did anything with. He had made his own solo album, and he just said, you know, got any ideas? And I was in my car listening to it, and I immediately started singing Spirit of Love. And I thought, mm. this is it. This is this is exactly what it needs to be. I feel there's something more to life than all this hate and war. What the world is waiting for. What the world is waiting for. It's the spirit of love. It's the spirit. It was kind of an Isley Brothers-esque vibe and Harvest for the World feel to it. Yeah. Harvest for the World. And so we, we met up and I sang the idea to both Mike and Phil. And it just kind of snowballed. And and it 
and it tied in with this idea that me and Mike had that having worked on Magnetize so hard, we thought we just need to do an album now where we enjoy ourselves. Mm. And we do that by allowing ourselves to be inspired by the music we grew up listening to in the 70s. So you'll hear on Wide Awake, there is a 70s soul influence. There's a bit of glam rock in there. You know, there's all kinds of things. And, and, and a part of that was this enjoyment, this fun of doing this album. And we did, we wrote most of it with Phil. I did a couple of songs on my own. And um, we just had a lot of fun doing it. And we all kind of merged into this moment of just wanting to create some positivity in the world, which sounds a little bit glib in a way, because a lot of people say such things, you know, and, and you don't want to be positive in a shallow way. You don't want to, you know, it's very easy to, people talk about hope as an example, the importance of hope, but it's really hard to just say that as a topic sentence to someone who's really lost all hope. Mm. And is going through all manner of very real, real, real life challenges to just say, you know, you got to hang on to hope. Well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So you as a songwriter have to explain what you mean by that. So it becomes less of just a soundbite and actually something's going to reach in and touch people. So yeah. that was something that I really worked on in the album Wide Awake because I, I did a, a, a lot of the lyrics myself. And it allowed me to take these kind of very ebullient, euphoric choruses and titles that we had and go a bit deeper. I mean, there's a song on the album called Love the Light, and I would never write a song where light and darkness are pitted against each other so obviously. I find that a contrived viewpoint because i don't think dark is wrong and light is right it's just a metaphor mm. that we've just grown up through religious means really yeah thinking about i think it's actually not not a healthy thing but phil had given me uh, a, a a backing track again for a chorus no melody or anything and he just put on the on the file love the light and i thought well, that's a starting point and so i ended up defining this title in a in a way of being able to say some important things What does that mean then? I love the light. And it did become a song, actually. It was mm. contrasting yeah. light and darkness. This is probably it's the first one I ever did. a songwriting tip, actually, for songwriters out there. You have these uh, fantastic titles, and then you have to define what they mean. Though that's a yeah. great starting point for someone who's looking, what can I learn from this podcast today? Is That would be a great kind of starting point for, for someone. Come up with some fantastic titles and then go away and define that and see where it takes you. The songwriting process, as you both know, is a very introspective one. Yeah. Now, if you are writing in a songwriting team, it's less so. Mm. But I, it's not really my world. So yeah. I, I tend to write alone. And and it reminds me of a something that I was told by my Native American friends and the question they asked me, 
what is the difference between introspection and true thought? Mm-hmm. And I went quiet, started to introspect. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they said the mm-hmm. answer is articulation. Yeah. Mm. So it really made me think very hard about the importance of that being, look, that being part of the, the lyric writing process. It, lyrics these days are very often written quickly, as the song mm. is, because that's just how the songwriting process has has become um but you've got to give things time you've yeah. got to give t- things time to reflect and really think about what it is you want to say and so it's more than just a a, a, a series of maybe very pretty sounding or nice sounding mm-hmm. lines that rhyme but but really that you feel you have said what you needed to say in the deepest and most i don't mean heavy because yeah. it can be light as well. It can be light and deep um, in the in the best way possible that you can. So it comes back to that. Take time. Take time. Yeah. But it does sound to me that you're quite a reflective songwriter, that you're kind of a truth seeker in your songwriting. Has there been any songs that you've just like plucked out of the ether at all? Yeah, it, th- there have been a few. And actually on Wide Awake, that happened more more often because I was in a co-writing situation. Yeah. So I had a lot more to work with. So uh, a great example was the song Wide Awake, which is yeah. maybe my favourite song on that album. Right. And when we, we went on tour, interestingly, you, met, you mentioned Phil Gould. We went on tour with Level 42 in 2021, was it? Yeah. So we opened for Level 42, and Wide Awake was one of those songs where people felt they'd heard it before. Mm-hmm. It was like it became... It's it's people loved it. It just yeah. it, it, they'd never heard it before. And they people would come up and talk to me about it afterwards. And um, and Wide Awake was one of those pieces of music where again Phil had come up with a backing track, which was like a Barry White thing. It was just totally. It wasn't. I couldn't connect with it, even though I liked Barry White. And then I, I took the chords and the the groove. And suddenly I had this idea for the chorus of Wide Awake. Um, and then Wide Awake, what's it going to be about? And it and it became this, it became a song actually that I hadn't written about before. Lovers left the room And we're in servitude Cause we must consume For an economic boom So that was one of those moments where um, it, it did seem to materialize incredibly quickly, unlike, what's a good example? Shadow Dreams. No, ma- yeah. Shadow Dreams is a long one. On, on the Wide Awake album, No Mistakes, which I wrote on my own, had been around for ages in, as an idea. I played it to Mike a couple of times before, and he was kind of, yeah, yeah, maybe, kind of. And then somehow, I, after many attempts, I finally figured out how to do it. Yeah. And and again, that as a lyric, that's one of the deeper lyrics on the album. And in actual fact, it has it's the only song that is a little bit reflective. Yeah. <laughs> and I did it on my own. Back when 
when you first started off and you were having these massive hits in the industry, people could see that there was a, a really good young songwriter here. You know, there must have been people trying to set you up left, right and centre to, to write with other artists. And you seem to have rejected that, did you? Uh, yeah, I didn't want to know. Yeah, I didn't want to know. And I still I still don't really, to be honest. It's, uh, you know, I did. I did try it in the probably the 2010s, I guess, for yeah. a short while. And it's not really my world. Um, it worked with Phil, though. It worked with Phil because we there's a difference between a session being set up and you yeah. show up and you don't really know each other, but what are we going to write today, that kind of thing, and someone that you've known for years, so you've already got a relationship with, which is the case with Phil. And also the only other person I've successfully co-written with is Mike Rutherford. And I co-wrote a couple of Mike and Mechanics albums um, of the of the the more recent era. Yeah. And I had met Mike Rutherford quite a few times when I was in Johnny Hates Jazz first time around when we were all out on the road promoting. And I always loved meeting him. Uh, he was a real gentleman and very, very friendly and seemed like a wise a wise person to take, you know, to ask their counsel uh, in, in such a, um, a whirlwind of a, of a situation. And then I, then it was suggested to me um, that I, you know, Mike was wanting to write a new Mike and Mechanics album. Did I want to give, give it a go, try one song? Mm. So I went down to Rutherford's personal studio and we, we connected very quickly. Mm. And, and we wrote a song called Let Me Fly, which eventually Andrew Roachford, who's one of the singers in Mike and the Mechanics now, mm. um, the Andrew Roachford, um, came in and, yeah, great singer, and came in and wrote the song with us. And we, we ended up writing a lot together for that album. And I'm looking down, not afraid to fall. So let me fly, let me fly, oh, let me fly. If I don't try. There's another interesting thing about who would you want to write with. Well, I was a big Genesis, big Mike and the Mechanics yeah. fan. I, it was so natural to me to yeah. to work with with Rutherford. And the other thing about it is this: is that when I say I'm not interested in writing with other people, it does sound it can sound, I think, potentially a little bit flippant. Actually, what I mean by that is that when it was put to me to write with Mike Rutherford, well, Mike Rutherford is is Gandalf to me in a way, you know, he's like, I, I knew that I was going to receive much more than a potential percentage of something in the future mm. that I was going to receive knowledge and experience. And, and that's what it was like. Yeah. You know, mm. Mike Rutherford doesn't, he's not that he sits there and starts regaling you with showbiz stories or rock and roll stories. He doesn't. It's just that he exudes it. He exudes his experience and just with little subtleties of comments or his 
amazing chord inversions, which are only him. Mm. When he started playing the guitar, I, my jaw metaphorically <laughs> dropped because it was like, oh my, this is, that's Genesis. Yeah. Mm. That's Mike and Mechanics. That's, he's the only one that uses those inversions. He's, yeah. he's, I think by his own admissions, admission, he, he comes across as quite chaotic in terms of how he approaches it. And he's not at all. He is such a fine musician. Mm. But I, I, I just, I learned so much. And so if someone gave me the opportunity to work with someone who I had great respect for, I would absolutely do it. It's as simple as that. Yeah. 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 On, uh, turn back to clock, uh, don't say it's love and whatever reason. Brilliant songs, right? And I always found the, the track listing of those songs were, were interesting because don't say it's love is somebody who's rejecting somebody and saying, you know, we're friends. Don't overstep your line. And mm. there's almost an, an aggression to that. And but then for whatever reason, it's the opposite. And I know they're not quite the same story, but it's from the other perspective of somebody turning to somebody saying, please, you know, accept my love or whatever. So I just kind of wonder, was that a deliberate choice to to kind of pair those or it was just just a coincidence at the time? It was a coincidence. Yeah. And um uh, I hadn't. I've never thought of it like that. Actually, to be honest, after mm. all these years, that they somehow are the flip side of, of a similar story. I had someone write to me um, literally two days ago, uh, message me thanking me for "Don't Say It's Love" because it saved them from potentially destroying a really valuable friendship mm. by pouring their heart out about how they felt romantically about someone when that particular person had actually been a dear friend of theirs for many years. Mm. And that really is what don't say it's love was about. It was, yeah. um, it was the idea that f the friendship was more important than anything else. Yeah. So let's cherish that. It was a bit aggressive, don't say it's love. And and I didn't mean it that way, I guess. So I think it was just uh, I, I got carried away with the the musical idea of it. It's very it's a it's a powerful track and especially when you play it on piano. Yeah. You can really dig you can dig your teeth into that one. Um and then one other reason was personal experience, someone who, you know, who doubted um another person's love and 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 I knew those two people and it was really a way of this. This is what you were saying earlier about putting myself in someone else's shoes, which is what I did. Uh, when someone someone feels that they don't deserve to be loved, mm -hmm. and the other person spends a lot of their time trying to convince them that they are loved, and um, and so that's what what other reason was about. So they they are kind of they are uh, related in certain ways. Yeah. Is it easier to write from the second perspective because people have probably more empathy for that character? Because when, when you do put yourself into a character and you're writing from a perspective, it's a bit like being an actor, you know, that you're, you're, you're taking on a role 
That's a very good way of putting it in terms of the acting profession. I think that it's it, it really does come down to the energy of the music as well. This is the importance of the relationship between music and lyric. That if the lyric has a kind of innate aggression to it, you can't help but articulate yourself in with that energy lyrically. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think it's more a question of what you choose to say with when you have an aggressive musical idea. Because yes. you then, it, it, the way I look at it now as, a, as an older fella is that I don't want to be angry with a particular person and put them down. Or, you know, when I was younger, I was less mature and looking at ways to articulate myself. And, and it actually, it worked, you know, in its own yeah. way, it worked. Um, and, um, but now I'd say, you know, if I've, you know, channel that anger, that rage into something that is more important and that becomes something that is potentially societal. Um, mm. whereas I think a song that is more innately compassionate musically asks for you to be that lyrically um, or a title requires a compassionate piece of music. I mean, the road not taken, mm -hmm. which is the title of a, a um, Robert Frost poem. Um, and I always loved the poem and decided to turn the title into a song, which is not quite what he says in the poem. The meaning is, is different, but the road not taken was immediately reflective, mm -hmm. you know, a bit whimsical so it it needed that it required it asked for that songs speak to you i don't know if you both find this but they kind of tell you what they need they are in to me they're they are entities in and of themselves so they they kind of they're the ones that can guide you what is needed i must recommend to people to check out uh the journey songs yeah, um, videos on youtube because they are quite unique um, and I think no matter, you know, we, we touch on songs here, but if anyone really wants to know your, your songs and your catalogue, uh, it's a great listen to go in and to, to get an entire, you know, 40 minutes or so on each song and the way you go through, yeah, the way you go through every song you do and go really in depth and tell all the backstory is fantastic. Yeah. They're, they're fantastic stories anyway, but for any songwriters of any genre to see someone of your caliber going into that depth, it's a masterclass, you know, and how to actually approach writing. And um, do you think you actually have a different kind of opinion looking back on stuff that you've written now, like, you know, compared to what you were thinking at the time? Do you have a different spin on it? Totally. No, <laughs> not, not, not always. Good example of a song that actually I have much more connection with now than I did when I wrote it is Turn Back the Clock. Really? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely, here we go, back to that thing again of yeah. putting myself in someone else's shoes or a future me's shoes. Mm -hmm. Turn Back the Clock was the me looking back on my life. Yeah. And as a kid. With wonderment. <laughs> yeah, as a kid. Yeah, amazing, yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, But I was imagining myself as an older person. And for a while... I kind of felt a bit embarrassed performing Turn Back the Clock because it was quite a sentimental song and I was much more into doing things that I don't want to be here and I don't say it to love. And, and then as I got older, I realised, wow, it actually it, 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 people kept coming up to me at gigs saying that was the song that mm -hmm. really touches me now hmm. because I look back on my life and feel this way and that way. And 
and it started to resonate more and more with me. So I've I'm actually closer to that song now. Yeah, it's um, amazing. It's really cool. Yeah, it is. And then other songs you kind of, you know, you uh, songs are probably songs that I never recorded, fortunately. But that when I wrote when I was younger, I look back and think, you know, what was I thinking? What's the decision process like in like, oh, I'm going to record that. And, and that's I don't feel like I, I can do that with this one. Um, well, I don't usually write songs now that I don't record. You know, it's if yeah. I'm gonna, I don't record. You know, it's if yeah. I'm going to finish it, I'm going to finish it because it's going to be recorded. Yeah. Um, but uh, there was a there was a really interesting one that was on Journey Songs One, the album Journey Songs One, which came out in February last year, I think, or March or something. And um, that's a triple CD that incorporates. A solo album I did after I left Johnny Hayes Jazz called Rain Dance, remastered yeah. version. Then an album called Fishing for Souls, remastered again, and then some some tracks that no one had heard before. And um on a third disc. And one of those tracks was a song called Where Do We Go From Here? Now, Where Do We Go From Here? I'd written as a teenager and had revisited for Rain Dance and recorded with an orchestra in mm-hmm. LA. It was a big production. Amazing. And I, at the time, felt like it 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 was too soft. It was mm-hmm. too sensitive. Um, and I didn't want to be that. That's not what I wanted to do. And it wasn't what the rest of the album was like. So I, I put it aside. I had this beautiful string arrangement by a guy called Jeremy Lubbock, who um, was a, a, an orchestrator, arranger, and writer. He did all the string arrangement for Chicago and Al Jarreau and wow. amazing guy. Wow. And um, and years later, I listened to Where Do We Go From Here Again? And I thought, wow, yeah, I think I made a, a massive mistake yeah. in not including that. That song probably would have been big. And yeah. so I finally got to include it on Journey Songs 3. And sure enough, people are finding it saying, my goodness, why did you never <laughs> release this song? <laughs> Yeah, and that, and so that's another example of how I kind of disassociated with myself with a song, in, in, in for the wrong reasons possibly because it was all about how people would interpret me, how they would perceive me, as opposed to just who I am. Yeah, and that was part of who I was. So it's it's lovely to finally include it in in an album. And did you include that original version that had been recorded with the orchestra in LA? Yeah, yeah, yeah I didn't change anything, didn't oh, wow. I didn't remix it. It's it's got a guide vocal on it. It's pretty good guide vocal actually, yeah. but um but I don't think anyone would know it was a guide vocal, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a lovely piece of music. So tell me Will I ever- 
Clark, really appreciate you giving us your time to talk about your songwriting. Thank you very much. Oh, you no, you're very welcome. It's been really enjoyable. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've just learned so much today. I think any um, songwriter out there, anyone who's interested in music at all, is going to absolutely love everything you've had to say. So thank you so much. Great. You're very welcome. Love it to meet you both. So Eva, what was your main takeaways from this conversation with Clark Datchler? Um, I suppose today we got a flavour of numerous songs in his catalogue and got to talk to him about that, which was a real treat. One thing I said about Clark is he's got a fantastic relationship with his fans. There's a real genuine online community of people who love what he does. And he knows some of these people personally from his interactions over the years. It shows his passion um, for songwriting as well, because what do what do we all love to talk about? You know, if we love songwriting, we talk about songwriting, and and, and that's that what that's what comes across his passion for his craft and how he he is like the ultimate songsmith. Really, another thing I found really interesting is when they had the first songs out in in the late eighties, and there was a big gap of over fifteen years before the next album came out. But it was like someone pressed the pause button and press play again. And the new songs, they had the same feel, the same songwriting skills there, the same voice, but but it was it was like the band never left. When you're talking about pressing pause there, I think it's probably because he's a really good songwriter. He never stopped. He was always like flexing that creative muscle. And one of the things I found amazing about Clark is when Johnny Hits Jazz had their first few songs out and they were heading for the top and they, they broke America essentially you know they had top 10 hits in America they had the world at their feet really but I think integrity was very important to Clark and a lot of people would have just rode the success train you know especially in the early days when they're just kind of so new you might see the biggest bands in the world you know walk away from it at the height of their career because you know they may be jaded or anything like that but for Clark it was like as you talked about his integrity and he wanted to really actually express himself and not necessarily what other people were expecting him to do. Yeah. And he went completely back to nature, grew his hair long, writing songs about the environment and totally changing his style, his look, and went down a completely new route without much thought of commercialism. And, and in fact, the opposite, he probably went on an anti-commercial approach to do something that he felt strongly about or cared about rather than how many albums he was selling for a record company, you know? So I think that says a lot about Clark. He really cares about the songs he writes, the message that's in the songs, and how they affect people and how to touch people. He obviously writes songs that have a vehicle that are pop songs, which gets to the masses, but there's a lot of depth under those songs. And I think that's very important to him that, that there is a message to his songs and he's just not writing pop songs for the sake of it. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right there. 